Let's turn in our Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 149 this evening. Psalm 149, closing in here on the last of the messages in the book of Psalms. And tonight we find ourselves in another one of the Hallelujah Psalms, noted by the fact that it begins and ends with this admonition, Praise ye the Lord. And these psalms, these last several psalms in the book of Psalms, are a reminder to us that it is both our privilege and our responsibility as the people of God to praise the Lord. God has given us this responsibility, but yes, it is also a privilege because we know who God is and we know what God has done for us and He certainly is worthy of our praise. You and I ought not to be silent when it comes time to praise the Lord. Psalm 149, let's look at that psalm together. We'll read it together and then we'll get right into our study this evening. The scripture says, Praise ye the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of saints. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. To execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written, this honor have all his saints. Praise ye the Lord. Tonight we ought to praise the Lord because he is the God of victory. And tonight we want to think about this important thought that we praise the God of victory. For the purpose of our study tonight, I've divided this psalm into two sections. The first section in verses 1 through the first part of verse number 6. The second section, the last part of verse 6 through verse 9. The first section there in verses 1 through 6 states this, saints ought to praise the Lord. And he gives us some reasons and some ways that we ought to praise the Lord. Then in verses 6 through 9, that those verses teach us that saints will participate in overcoming. And as we think about our God being victorious, these songs in particular bring joy to our hearts. So let's look first of all in verses 1 through 6 and think about the obligation that we have to praise the Lord. Saints ought to praise the Lord. He says, very simply, in the beginning of the psalm, praise ye the Lord. As we've noted, making our way through these psalms, this is an admonition. It's a command. It's an expectation. It is coming from God to us, reminding us that we ought to praise the Lord. We ought to praise Jehovah. He goes on in verse 1 to say, sing unto the Lord a new song. And I want to remind you, This evening, that God is deserving of a new song. Often in the Psalms, we read about a new song that God has put in our heart, and certainly, as those who are redeemed, 
those who have been transformed by the power of God, we have the opportunity and the capacity to sing a new song. But I was challenged with this thought as I was reminded that too often our creative power is given over to complaints and griping. We spend our time and our energy and even our creative power thinking about all the reasons why our life isn't too good and why we're not blessed and why we're upset and grumpy and we don't like the way that things are going. Instead, let us use our energy and our ingenuity to sing and to write new songs to God to compose new songs to the Lord. The reason that we can do this is because He has done a new work in us, and we are new creatures in Christ, so He is worthy of a new song. I also want to point out to you that we should be careful about not trying to adapt the old songs of the world to somehow praise the God of heaven. Our God is worthy of much more than that. And we ought to be careful to make sure that we are singing unto the Lord a new song. Isn't it interesting how when you got saved, God changed the song in your heart? Before, perhaps you sang about the things of this world, the dreams and ambitions that you had for this life, and now that you're redeemed with an eternal perspective and a relationship with God, we have so much more to sing about as God's people. So he says, sing unto the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of saints. And I want to remind you tonight that the assembly, the congregation of the saints, ought to be a place where we can praise God. If we can't praise God here, where are we going to praise him? As we stand around and chat with one another and talk about the things that are going on in our lives, let us make sure that we are giving proper place to the praise of God. The assembly of the saints ought to be a gathering of praise and exaltation of God. And I know this happens to me. When you share what God has been doing in your life, it causes me to praise God more And then perhaps even to notice some things that God has been doing in my life that I haven't been paying close attention to, and I can praise Him and share that with you, and that will cause you to praise Him. And it's just one of these things where as we're praising God together, our hearts are lifted up to more and more praise. And the house of God ought to be a place of praise. He goes on in verse 2, and he makes this statement. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. So first of all, he says, let Israel rejoice in him that made him. And I want to remind you tonight that we ought to rejoice in our creator. Now, you'll notice verse 2 is particularly addressed to the nation of Israel. And certainly Israel was a special people, still are a special people to God. They are a nation that God created. He called Abraham out. He gave Abraham offspring. And then he blessed that offspring. And he made from those children and grandchildren that came to Abraham a great nation that today we call Israel. God is the one who made that nation. God is the one who created them. And because of that, 
the psalmist says that they ought to particularly rejoice in the Lord. They ought to praise God because he is their creator. It's true that in one sense, every person that was a part of the nation of Israel was created by God. And it's also true that the entire nation was created by God. And now I want you to think about that in terms of you and I tonight. And it is true of us as well, because every single one of us is a special creation of God. Every one of us has been designed and has been given life by the breath of God. And we can rejoice in the fact that we have a creator, but we also know that this assembly, this church, is something that has been made by God. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And we ought to rejoice in the fact that we have a creator. When we praise tonight in the assembly, we sing songs of praise, and we talk with one another about what God has done, we are praising the one who made us. And that's a, that's a wonderful thought this evening. Rejoice in your creator. I hope that you're rejoicing in him. He goes on in verse 2, and then he says, let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. So they are to think about not only the fact that God has created them, but they are to think about the fact that he is their king, or he is the one in authority over them. It seems like a strange thing to be joyful in your authority, joyful in your king. The truth is, most of us chafe under authority, and we resent the idea that someone else is in charge. We like the idea that I'm in charge of myself, and I can do whatever I want. But this is not characteristic of the people of God. This is not how we ought to live our lives. This is not how we ought to behave towards authority, particularly towards God's authority. You and I hopefully have found that God's authority and his rule is not grievous in our lives, but rather God's rule is beneficial. And you and I should express our joy that he is our king. In my personal devotions, I've been reading through the book of Deuteronomy And I'm in that part of Deuteronomy where Moses is recounting the law the second time to the new generation just before Moses goes off the scene and Joshua takes them into the promised land. And several times I've noted as I'm reading through the law that Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls attention to the fact that if the people of God will obey the commands of God, they will experience the joy of their God. And and this is how God has designed it. When we submit ourselves to his authority and we follow his commands and we live according to his way, it brings tremendous joy in our lives. So tonight, be joyful in the authority of your God. I mean, think about your life before you met him. And think about what life was like when you were in charge of your life. Think about the mess that we can make out of our lives, and then think about how good God is when we submit to his authority. That's something to praise him for, that he is the God who is over us. Then in verse 3, he says this, let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel and harp. And the idea here is that God deserves enthusiastic praise. 
Now, I know right away some of you are thinking, Pastor, we're a Baptist church. We don't believe in dancing. And yet it is in the scripture, isn't it? It says that he is to be praised. And we should take a moment and give a word of explanation about what's being spoken about here. Because certainly today we have a little bit of a different idea of the dance than they did when Psalm 149 was written. In our sense, the dance is more of a sensual or sensuous type of an exercise. It is something which accentuates the body movements and draws attention to the individual in a way that is not glorifying to the Lord. But the dance that is referred to in Psalm 149 is more of the idea of leaping with jubilation. It's the idea of an excitement. It's like, um, you know, when my boys get excited about something, they have this way of just leaping up in the air. Yes! And that's the idea here when he's talking about the dance is the, the extreme jubilation, the excitement uh, when someone realizes who God is and what God has done. Now, you'll notice that it says that you are to praise his name in this sense of excitement. You are to praise the true God, the way that he has revealed himself, the way that he has told us that he actually is. And we should be enthusiastic in our praise towards God. Because you and I are excited about his identity and his person, we can express tremendous joy. Sometimes if you're feeling down and you're discouraged by the circumstances of life, it'll do you good to take some time to meditate on who God is and what God is like. Because it always brings your thoughts to a place of stability and foundation that is untouched by the circumstances of life. And believe it or not, you could find yourself being quite enthusiastic and excited about what God has done for you, even in the midst, perhaps, of some discouraging circumstances that you may face. But it's not only in the dance that we ought to be enthusiastic or that expression of jubilation, But he goes on in verse 3 and states, Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel and the harp. So enthusiastic praise can also be expressed through music. And we ought to be enthusiastic in our singing and in our playing of instruments to praise the name of God. Now the two instruments that are mentioned specifically in verse 3 are the timbrel and the harp. The timbrel would be similar to what we know today as a tambourine. It is an instrument which is for the purpose of marking rhythm. And oftentimes it would be shaken or struck with the idea of keeping time in with the music. And so there is the, the aspect of rhythm. And lest you be confused about this, all music has a sense of rhythm. If there was no rhythm, it wouldn't be music. It wouldn't make any sense. If the rhythm gets out of place, then that can become sensual and ungodly. But rhythm in its proper place is an important component of music. Then he speaks about the harp. And the harp would be a stringed instrument. Of course, it was probably a little different than the type of harp that we envision, but in some ways would have been similar. It was definitely a stringed instrument which was used 
to strike the notes of the melody and perhaps the harmony. And the three basic parts of music, melody, harmony, and rhythm, are all spoken of here when we think about the fact that we are to be enthusiastic in our praise of God. Let us not, as the people of God, when we sing the hymns, when we sing the songs of worship to God, let's not mumble, let's not hide our face, let's not mutter or skip most of the words, but rather let us meditate on the message of the song and lift our voice and sing enthusiastically and excitedly because we have a God who is worth worshiping. We notice that Jehovah is pleased when his people are enthusiastic of their praise or with their praise of him. So we should sing and we should play instruments and we should do so with excellence and we should do so with enthusiasm for one reason, because our God is worthy of that praise. Then notice in verse number four, it says, for the Lord taketh pleasure in his people He will beautify the meek with salvation. It is interesting to me because this psalm is really focusing on the idea that we take pleasure in the Lord. We praise Him. But then we're reminded that He takes pleasure in us. And that's a remarkable thought. That the God who is the creator of all, that the God who is eternal is delighted in those that he created, those who worship him. Do you know tonight, if you worshiped God with enthusiasm when you came into this place, God was pleased with that. God is delighted when his people worship him. God receives joy and pleasure from our praise. I wonder if we thought about that when we prepare to praise the Lord, if it would change the way that we sing if it would change the way that we pray and the way that we communicate to one another, the way that we give praise to God, if we think really about the fact that He is watching and He is listening and He is pleased when we worship Him from the heart, it might change some things about the way that we worship the Lord. I was just struck by that thought that the Lord would take pleasure in His people. I don't know that there's a whole lot about me For him to find pleasure in? But that's an astounding thought that he would find pleasure in his people. Then it goes on in verse 4 to say, He will beautify the meek with salvation. And this idea is, this idea of beautifying, particularly speaks of the fact that God glorifies his people. So as we praise him, or we glorify him, he glorifies his people. He beautifies the meek with salvation. And the meek that are referred to in verse number four are those who are lowly or humble or needy. When we come to praise God, we come as needy people. We come as people who desperately need to hear from God and need to sense his presence and need to walk with him and need to be in fellowship with him. We are meek. And God is good and gracious to glorify or to beautify His people. And by the way, when God beautifies His people, that's true, eternal beauty. The beauty that we think of when we think of 
that word beauty is temporary and it's passing, it's fleeting. We see beauty in the world around us, which of course is something that God made, but we also know that this world is touched with corruption. Therefore, everything that is beautiful is passing away. So we're reminded of the temporary nature of that beauty. But when God beautifies his people, that is an eternal beauty. That is a beauty that is only going to get better. Because as we come into eternity, into his presence, and experience glorification or full salvation, we will experience what beauty really is. And we will rejoice in the glory that God has given to his people. Aren't you thankful tonight that our God is bringing us to glory? He's not leaving us here. He's not leaving us in corruption. He's bringing us into a place of glory. And this is a wonderful thought which should bring great joy to our hearts. Then that's why in verse 5 it says, Let the saints be joyful in glory. When we see God fulfilling his beautiful purpose in our life, when we see him beautifying the meek, that would be us, hopefully, and we see God changing us from glory to glory into the image of Christ, and we recognize God's good work in us, that should bring about a great spirit of joy in our lives. If you can look back and remember what you were before you got saved, and you can see even now that God is at work in your life, molding you into the image of Jesus Christ, it ought to fill your heart with joy. You ought to have some some happiness about you, if you will. The, the, The work of Jehovah should resonate in our hearts. Do you ever sometimes just sit back and think about what God has done in you, for you, and to you, and just marvel that God would be so good? to us. There's times when I'll sit back and just meditate on all that God has given me and all that God has done in my life. And and all I can say is, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness to me. It brings great joy to my heart. He goes on to say in verse 5 that this joy is so real and so intense. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Now, Be careful with this. Your family may not appreciate it if you belt out a song of worship at 2 a.m. when you wake up. They probably will not be glad that you're doing such a thing. But the idea here is that the saints, those who love the Lord, are so captivated with the praise of their God that He is always on their mind. He is always present. And even in the night when they wake up in their bed... Their thoughts go to the Lord and His goodness. By the way, much better thing to think about than the worries that tend to cloud our mind in the middle of the night or the the anxieties that tend to sink down upon us. Much better that we would be joyful in the Lord and, and be singing praise to the Lord upon our beds. And then he goes on in verse 6 and he says, Let the high praises of God be in their mouth. I like that phrase, the high praises of God. Not just ordinary praises, but high praises. Our God deserves the highest praise. Our mouths should be filled with them. But then I was struck by this convicting thought. 
what is in your mouth most of the time? What is in my mouth most of the time? Too often, what is in my mouth is complaining, murmuring, disputing, things that really don't belong in a Christian's mouth, too often find their way there. And what should we replace those things with? We should replace it with the praise of God. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth. You might just mark that down in your Bible and think about that tomorrow and ask God all day long, Lord, would you help me to have the high praises of your name in my mouth today? Would you help me to give glory and honor to you? And so we see in these verses that the saints ought to praise the Lord. But then we notice from here, the middle part of verse 6, down through the end of the psalm, that the saints will participate in overcoming. And it's a curious way that it's phrased there in verse 6. It's really a transition that takes place right in verse 6 when he talks about us having the high praises of God in our mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. A two-edged sword. Now, there's a definite change that takes place in the psalm at this point. Because from here to the end of the psalm, he's going to talk about how God is going to judge the wicked. He's going to talk about how our God is victorious. And he's going to talk about how we as the people of God are going to participate in that victory. So he says we should have the praises of God in our mouth and we should have a two-edged sword in our hand. And what is this double-edged sword, do you think? Isn't it interesting that you and I are being reminded of the battle that we fight as believers? We're praising our God, and we're involved in the battle. It's like the children of Israel when they were working, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem under the ministry of Nehemiah, and those builders... In one hand, they had a trowel for rebuilding the stone walls, and in the other hand, they had a sword because they had to be prepared for the battle. So on one hand, we praise God, and on the other hand, we recognize that we are in a battlefield, brother, not a recreation room. This is a fight and not a game. Now, it's true that our battle is different than the battle that Israel fought, Israel fought against physical enemies with swords and shields and spears. They overtook a land and defended against physical nations that tried to come back and steal that land back from them. Our battle is different. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and powers. We're we're dealing with spiritual wickedness in high places. Our adversaries are not physical. Our adversaries are spiritual. And our weapon is the two-edged sword of the Spirit. Aren't you thankful that we have God's Word? It's a powerful weapon indeed, and it's an effective weapon for our battle. And what is really interesting in verse 6 is that the sword that we wield, the Word of God, is complementary to the praises that ought to be in our mouths. As we praise God... We fight this battle, and we're reminded of the sword of the Spirit. Now, he goes on in the next verses 
In verse 6 or 7, excuse me, he says that we have this sword in, their, in, in our hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people. Vengeance and punishments will be meted out upon the enemies of Jehovah. There's no denying that. We're reminded tonight that it is the Lord who will bring vengeance, but He will use His people to bring this about. It is the Lord who brings vengeance. Never forget, the Scripture says, God stated, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. He is the one who will mete out vengeance and punishment. Now, in this dispensation in which we are living, we mete out our vengeance by compassionately rescuing souls from the fire. And in this way, you and I engage our enemy and snatch others out of his grasp. This is the battle that we're called to be engaged in. You and I also do war with our sinful nature that still plagues us. We do war with the deceptive power of the world that all around us is drawing me and you and others away from the Lord. And so we use the truth of God to mete out vengeance and punishment upon this world system by speaking God's truth and tearing down the strongholds of the enemy. In verse 8, he speaks about binding their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. And we're reminded that the authority of the wicked will be overcome. To us, Satan's power may seem daunting and insurmountable. He may seem very frightening to us, but Jehovah will give us the victory. We need not fear the power of Satan. The power of the enemy will be overcome because he cannot stand against the strength of the Lord. Praise God for that. Do you realize even tonight that there are wicked authorities in this world? There, are, there is spiritual wickedness in high places. And, and God's intention is to bring those wicked authorities under His authority. And that day is coming. In verse 9, we're reminded to execute upon them the judgment written. Judgment is promised to those who reject the Lord. You and I play a part in this judgment by declaring the truth so that men are responsible when they stand before God. You and I have a responsibility to declare the truth. And by the way, the, the good news is that many of the people we declare the truth to will understand the truth and be convicted by the truth and will turn from the error of their ways and become worshipers of God with us. And also one day, you and I will rejoice that the Lord takes vengeance and executes judgment upon those who refuse His mercy. It's hard for us to understand that right now, but one day we will rejoice when God takes vengeance on those who have turned away from Him. And so we are involved in a warfare. By the way, there's coming a time when our responsibility in this warfare will be a little different. There is coming a time when God's people will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ, literally. There is coming a time uh, when, when that battle will be different. But right now, we are wrestling against flesh, not against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual powers that are at work in the world around us. And we notice in verse 9, he says this, This honor have all his saints. What honor? The honor of being involved in the battle 
with our captain. Our captain is the Lord of hosts, and it is our honor to be a part of his army. And one day you and I will be participants in the culmination of his final victory. And that is a consoling thought which should cause us to praise the Lord. But even now, it is an honor for you and I to be a part of the army of the Lord. We sang tonight, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. And you say, why do we sing these songs about war? Well, because we are in a battle. We are at war. There is a spiritual warfare that is going on. Ephesians chapter 6 reminds us that we are engaged in a real spiritual warfare and we ought to be marching forward with our captain and engaging the enemy and realizing that we need to take the armor of God and be prepared for the battle that we are encountering. There's perhaps a little bit too much sissified Christianity today and this idea that there's no battle at all. And I wonder if that isn't the doing of our enemy, lulling God's people to sleep and convincing them that there is no battle, when in fact we are in the middle of a battlefield. And even now we have an enemy, the enemy of our souls and the enemy of the souls around us. And it is an honor for us to be a part of the Lord's army. Praise God tonight because He is the God of victory And he concludes the psalm with this statement again, Praise ye the Lord. Tonight, praise God because he's a God who gives victory. Praise God because he's invited you to be a part of that victory. Praise God because he's done a wonderful work in your life and he wants to do a wonderful work in the lives of those around you. Tonight, let's praise the God who is the God of victory.